Welcome to Better Off Red, Strike Wave Edition. We're so happy this episode to be covering the incredible teacher strikes in West Virginia and Oklahoma. By the time this is airing, who knows what other states they'll be spreading to. Stick around. That, that feeling that I got whenever we won, and we everyone was crying, we were singing Country Roads. Okay, that's our song. <laughs> we sang that song eight million times times all right we hear it in our sleep i hear it in my sleep so that's our song but i tell you what this is what happened and this is where it shifted we sang that song we held hands we cried we hugged each other we gave high fives but then we started chanting west virginia first oklahoma next that's right right. (laughs) this fight was not just about west virginia this was for the entire nation this was for the world, mm-hmm. and I believe mm-hmm. that this was a lesson that everybody can benefit from, and we believe that we are one spark that is now being fanned into a flame, and we want to see it spread all across. That's right. That's right. Country roads, take me home to the place I belong. Was Katie Endicott of Mingo County, West Virginia, speaking at a solidarity event that was held in New York City shortly after the West Virginia teacher strike victory? And clearly, she was right about this spreading into a wildfire. The New York Times ran a headline saying, Teacher strikes spreading like wildfire with no end in sight. And goodness, do we hope so. In this episode, just to give you a little picture of what you can expect, we're going to start with an interview with Jessica Lytle, who is a teacher who's on strike in Oklahoma right now. She was able to speak with Elizabeth Lalash and Hannah Utain Evans about the conditions, about what's going on in Oklahoma. Next up, we will be talking to Eric Blanc, who is a journalist with Jacobin, who is in West Virginia covering the strike and is now in Oklahoma um, covering that strike about what his thoughts are on what's happening there. And then finally, we close out our episode with a pretty incredible interview with Nicole McCormick, who was a striking teacher in West Virginia, about her experience in speaking with Dana Blanchard, who was a teacher for 15 years and was in West Virginia covering the strike for Socialist Worker. United we stand, divided we fall, for every time they give us a battle must be fought. Before we go to the recording of Jessica, we just wanted to talk a little bit about what we thought were some of the themes that really ran through this discussion and our experience of the strikes taking place. To me, the thing that I find most striking in conversations is the way that it feels like everything's almost been turned on its head. You've had years of relentless Republican attacks seemingly without any consequence or without any sense of the physical limits that they could bring people to. And then what snapped first in West Virginia and now it seems to be reverberating is the pent up anger and misery that people have been holding in, have been maybe ashamed of, uh, that's coming out now in public is so explosive. And I think that that really comes across. Yeah. And one of the things I think we're seeing is that the dynamic of these strikes, it's not just that we're seeing strikes um, for the first time in a while, which in itself is a big deal. But even the strikes that we've seen in recent years feel like they've been 
almost how do we bring more leverage to the negotiating table? How do we get a slightly better deal? And it seems like something has flipped. And now it's we're going out and we are demanding that you fund our schools. We're demanding that we deserve to be paid, you know, like the educators um, and workers that we are. We're demanding that we're worthy and we're not going back until we get it. And it's opening up a whole different level of conversation, um, I feel like, that's taking place. Yeah, in both West Virginia and in Oklahoma, state legislators passed in significant pay raises that on their own you think would have just ended those ended the strike right then and there. But in West Virginia, they said, we'll give you 4%. And they said, no, thanks. We're staying out for 5%. In Oklahoma, we'll give you $6,000 a year extra. No, thanks. We think we, we're due $10,000 a year. It is almost like, where did this come from? Because it seems like such a, such a far cry from where we were just a year ago compared to the Chicago teacher strike in 2012, which one significant victory didn't spread elsewhere necessarily. And then immediately the city went back on the offensive and kind of and we may see the same dynamic in other places. But whatever else you can say, it's like, when was the last time? How many decades has it been since a statewide strike of anyone anywhere inspired similar statewide strikes in short order elsewhere in the country? I mean, this is an actual strike wave we're watching unfold before us, and it's already is having and is going to have dramatic consequences at the level of people's own ideas in their heads, at the level of what the labor movement can consider to be the reasonable horizons to aim for. I mean, the list goes on. It's not just that they're going on strike for $6,000 or $10,000 or for a pay raise for themselves. It's like, we want a pay raise for ourselves and for every state worker. We want a pay raise for ourselves, and we want hundreds of millions of dollars invested in education. I'm sure these politicians are like, whoa, stay in your lane, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you can maybe ask for a raise, but, like, you're not going to run the education. Tell us that we should tax oil and gas companies. Like, that's not, you're not the legislators, but actually workers are standing up and saying no. Like, the way um, Nicole put it, it's like, it's our labor. We're doing it, and we get to say something about where this goes. And I just think that's changing the narrative. Narrative, and I think finally, and it's changing like the discussion about who is the working class in this country, wherever you are, like people working, you'll hear this in these interviews, two or three jobs just to get by people feeling a sense of shame if they're on food stamps or if they have to work two jobs or that they're going through struggles or they can't make their health care payments. And suddenly the discussion is not about like, what's my personal shame? Suddenly the discussion is about who's going to pay for this crisis. And Eric makes the point, I think it's an important one, listen to him when he talks about it, that this is raising the political level. This is raising political questions about who pays taxing the rich. And that's a much bigger discussion that's opening up. Well, I was just going to refer to a different point that Eric makes as well, though, which is when he talks about in Oklahoma, he's saying this has been a public discussion for years. And it really just speaks to the invisibility of working class life in this country. We've been through a year and a half of national media pieces about why do people vote for Trump? What's going on? Let's explore working class life. But then a strike and the spontaneous discussion that generates from the participants in it, you learn more in one day about life in Oklahoma or West Virginia than you did from two years of this coverage. And the other thing that happens is when these struggles break out, you learn more about, and I don't want to romanticize this, but some of the spontaneous solidarity that workers express when they're in struggle 
struggle. And you realize that so many of our labor laws, the question about, wait, you're on strike and you're demanding pay for other workers and you're demanding <laughs> funding for education. There's actually labor laws that don't allow you to go on strike for those issues, right? And then when you only go on strike for your own contract, everyone comes down on you for being selfish for only going on strike for your own issues. We saw the Chicago Teachers Union very pointedly go on strike in 2012 and then a one-day strike later around issues that weren't just theirs. There is a whole layers of bureaucracy and law that are designed to prevent workers from expressing that's right. solidarity that's actually quite natural and almost instinctive. You know what I mean? And not, not in all cases. And that's one of the things that I think hopefully is this, where this is a moment that's really laying the groundwork for much, much more to come, which is not to say it's going to be an unceasing up and away from here, but even after this wave crest, you know, uh, laying the basis for changing people's consciousness. The transformative dimension that's, that Danny's talking about, you can just see already coming through in some of these interviews in terms of how people have been told to blame themselves for poverty, for not being able, for having to choose between medication and food at the end of the month. You know, you just need to save more. You just need to tighten your belt a little bit more. And then what a strike does is give people the framework to understand their personal predicament in political broader terms. I think is important, which is that these strikes are taking place in what's called red state America. But one of the things that you'll get from these interviews and that's important to understand is that they're only recently red states, that Democrats have overseen decades of neoliberal austerity, allowing extractive industries to take the resources and give nothing back, tax breaks to the wealthy while everybody else got screwed. And that's what paved the way for, you know, the opening for the right wing. And when we talk about building an alternative to the right, and we talk about building an alternative to Trump, if there's one thing that these strikes should tell us is that that alternative is not going to come from above. It's not going to come from inside the beltway. It's going to come from places like Mercer County, Mingo County, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Arizona, where ordinary people are starting to take the narrative in their own hands, their lives in their own hands, and build a different kind of alternative. And that's something to be really hopeful about. For every time they give us a battle must be fought. Before we go to our clip with Jessica Lytle from Oklahoma, we just wanted to take a minute to really thank everybody who's been listening, sharing, and supporting us thus far. We've been live for about two weeks with our episodes, and we've had a really encouraging and exciting response, lots of people engaging with us on Facebook, and we're very excited about the podcast and about this episode in particular and want to make sure that it gets out there. So if you can just take a few minutes to make sure to check us out in the Apple Podcasts iTunes store, subscribe, leave us a rating and a review if you can. Those make a big difference. And share this with your friends and everybody that you know, the kinds of stories you're not going to hear anywhere else. And we want to make sure that people get them. Also, um, take a minute to check us out on social media. Our social media handle is at Better Off Red Pod. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We're sharing information, pictures, more stories throughout the week um, that we think you'll find valuable. We hope you'll find valuable. And we hope you continue to tune in. And without further ado, we're going to take you to Jessica Lytle in Oklahoma. My name is Jessica Lytle, and I teach alternative education at Pewterball Middle School to 7th and 8th graders and I'm married to an educator Jason Lytle who teaches 9th through 12th grade special education English. We can't leave it the way it is and if that means bringing so much attention that it's a humiliation for everyone I, I apologize to my community for covering it up so long and I think we all feel that way like we didn't realize how bad it was until I went around and took these pictures and it's every single classroom has issues like this. 
Yes. I have a coworker who had a really nice brand new filing cabinet and rats built a nest in it and she doesn't even know how they got in it. And people are, are kind of tight about the raising taxes, but yeah. it seems like uh, Target is on the back of the oil companies and trying to raise the gross production tax. It kind of is, because our um, gross, gross production on, I believe it's new wells, and I don't know enough, because three days ago I didn't even care. Right. I, did, I was going to make my own money, supplement my classroom, then my eyes were open. Mm. But it was 2% on new wells, and in other states it's at least 7 so we're kind of in a position that our legislature's being pressured to go to at least 5% and possibly 7 We are wholly conservative, mm -hmm. and we're kind of like, we've kind of always had the philosophy that, you know, there are some some more socialist things that I think people should be able to volunteer and say we'll give our money to that and kind of depend on people to step up to the plate instead of being forced or mandated and especially for people who don't have very much to be forced or mandated to give to something that they don't really benefit from. Um, when this started, we really hadn't been paying attention. We'd been basically trying to take care of ourselves, having another job and raising our son and kind of trying to fight through helping our students. Now that I've been here teaching for five years, I've noticed that our community is giving as much as they can. We're getting as many donations as we can, but the infrastructure is such uh, an emergency situation that it's not just donations and and we need to decide as a community as a state what are we going to do about it mm -hmm. um, we need to come up with a solution we can't keep putting kids in these schools and I wouldn't say that I'm being super socialist in advocating for this movement mm -hmm. I would say uh, I'm bringing all the evidence to the front line because something needs to change. It's easy to become bitter and irritated when you're standing out there in the freezing cold by yourself. But then I looked around and so many teachers were scared to death. Mm -hmm. After I got picked up by CNN and they wanted an interview with me and my husband, I was amazed by the stepping up of other teachers who seemed scared before and weren't saying anything about this. All of a sudden they started posting pictures and sharing our posts. So I think it just, it's contagious. It's, we've got to be brave. We've got to realize we're the advocates for these kids. Do we want our kids to be in this situation? Heck no. And these parents are the same way. They love their kids to death and we can't lie to them and let them think everything's hunky-dory. I'm willing to lose it all because my option is stay in the same district and they keep giving me this job or they get irritated with me, fire me, and I go to Texas and I make $30,000 more a year and my husband makes twenty-five dollars or $30,000 more a year. My son gets to go to globally viable schools and gets to um, have a, a rich culture and great living conditions. So working people use your power the key to liberty. So you just got to hear Jessica Lytle talk about some of the conditions in Oklahoma. Next, we're going to turn to an interview with Eric Blanc, as we said, a journalist with Jacobin, um, to talk about some of the broader context. We're here with Eric Blanc, um, who is in Oklahoma covering the strike that's going on for Jacobin. And 
was willing to take 20 minutes to talk to us. So thank you so much, Eric. Great. It's nice to be on here. Thanks. So one of the things you wrote a really great article in Jacobin called It's Oklahoma's Turn to Strike. And one of the things you talk about there is how since the economic recession of 2008, education funding has been slashed by 28 percent. Um, and that clearly that's the backdrop to this strike. And even before the teachers went out, they won a $6,000 raise, which wasn't everything they were demanding. They were demanding 10000 but still pretty huge in terms of percentages. But right. they Imagine were, saying that sentence four months ago. I know. Right? <laughs> um, but they went out anyway. And it seems pretty clear right now that what the teachers are talking about is this is really about funding. And can you talk a little bit about that? What are some of the main issues driving the strike right now? What are people most angry about? What's what's it look like on the ground there? The main two demands this whole time, really going back years, has been both uh, a pay increase and funding. They, they go hand in hand because ultimately, if you don't have decent pay, teachers are leaving the state, just like we saw in West Virginia. And that's hurting student conditions generally. And the flip side of that, um, as far as the deterioration of public education and the real push towards privatization, are these direct cuts to public education across the board. And it's the confluence of those two real offensives that's led to the strike, plus the inspiration of West Virginia. And so what happened was that the $6,000 pay increase was a real concession. You know, that's not a minor uh, victory. The flip side of that though, is that the teachers are very aware that it's completely insufficient to reverse the really catastrophic uh, attacks on public education over the last decade. It's going back to really the Democratic Governor Henry. So this is not just a Republican uh, issue, even though it's framed that way opportunistically by um, Democrats who would like to remember in November and sweep into power on the kind of backs of the strike. But the amazing thing really was after this last minute deal um, by the majority Republican legislature and the governor to give mostly just a a pay increase, the the sentiment from below was to continue with the action that was planned. The union initially seemed to be wavering a little. The framework that appeared to be pushed was that last Monday, April 2nd, would be a a thank you day of action potentially in which people would come out to thank the legislature for the deal that was made and to continue raising demands. But it was unclear whether, to be honest, there was going to be an ongoing strike, work stoppage. And what became clear on Friday and over the weekend was that teachers were not having it. They, they weren't going to go back just for the pay increase because they truly, sincerely feel that they're doing this for the kids. That's not a rhetorical device. It's, it's you know, every single person you talk to is aware that, you know, if they have better pay, but there's still no textbooks, there's not functioning chairs, what, what does that mean for students and teachers? So the dynamic now is that really the st- Strike has pivoted towards the question of funding for schools generally and for public services because the cuts uh, haven't just been to public schools but have been to you know infrastructure across the board. What I think was most amazing about the action on Tuesday, the second day of the strike, was that there was a real political evolution from even the day before. Whereas the first day was primarily focused on pay and more general defending education. 
over the course of a day, all of a sudden, all of these signs come out of the woodwork saying, tax big oil. I saw dozens of signs saying, why are their funds going towards prisons and not schools? This was not a minor wow. phenomenon. The, the real question now has become funding. And in some ways, this is more political because it puts to the center the question of whose priorities. Is it the priorities of the corporations and the rich? or of working class people. And this is an issue that I think is raises real political questions both for the movement and for the country because frankly, the labor movement in Oklahoma and more generally hasn't been as aggressive as we might hope to really say the money is there, but it needs to come from the rich. Even in Oklahoma, the general discourse from the union leadership has been, well, there's funding and it can come from both the rich and everybody. Everyone's got to pay their fair share. And I think that that as a message is less powerful and less, in some ways, attuned to the anger from below. And it potentially lends itself towards the right wing saying, teachers are demanding these increases in funds. This is going to come from either your taxes or from other poor people. And so the question of raising the centrality of making the rich and not working class pay is still a political issue that hasn't been resolved in Oklahoma. Right. And part of this is the oil and gas companies are making a killing in a place like Oklahoma but they lowered the tax rate on the oil and gas companies. I mean, this is really a very central political issue, is that it's just in 2015, we're not talking right. decades ago, just very recently, there was a 7%, um, what's called a gross production tax, which is a, more or less a tax on drilling and extraction of oil and natural gas. That's just, what, three years ago? Yeah. It was at 7%. It was cut to 2%. And now, strangely, or maybe not strangely, if you have an analysis of the Democratic Party, <laughs> uh, the proposal that was made was just to raise it to 5%. That this is somehow a you know a real historic gain, which again we shouldn't be minimized that a Republican legislature was forced to raise taxes. But teachers aren't stupid; they realize that this doesn't even get back to what they had three years ago. So so this is it's really quite amazing how hard they've had to fight just to reverse some of these basic cuts that have happened. Let alone to raise the GPT to something like 12% or 25%, which other states have. Which, what just to clarify really quickly, that requires a 75% supermajority, according to Oklahoma law, right? To raise the taxes? Right, which is one of the you know current obstacles towards a short, quick resolution to this crisis. I think it's one of the reasons we could expect the action to drag on longer, perhaps, than West Virginia. Who knows? But that is certainly a major issue. Just when you were talking before about Republicans cutting the oil tax from 7% to 2% and Democrats triumphantly raising it back to 5%, I mean, it's almost literally the Malcolm X quote nice about the Democratic Party, about one person sticks a knife in your back and the Democrats come and pull it, pull it out halfway. That doesn't mean they're your friend. That quote continues to be relevant through the years. The question I wanted to ask, though, beyond just inserting my little Malcolm X quip, was... I'm struck, and again, as we're recording this, which is on Wednesday, I feel like the, the the national media coverage has not really at all picked up on the fact of the dynamics you're talking about, about funding, you know, for schools being as much what teachers are continuing to stay out for as, you know, fi fighting for the $10,000. What's been the level of community support, you know what I mean, in different communities in Oklahoma for, the, for this strike? And does it have the feel of... We've seen, certainly in West Virginia, but also a few years ago when the Chicago teachers struck in 2012, there was a sense of not just a strike, but a social movement. You know what I mean? A real combination of those things. And I don't know if, if you could just maybe paint a picture of to what degree you've seen some of that or not seen some of that in, in the way things are playing out so far in Oklahoma. Yeah, I think I think it's clear that the overwhelming majority of people in the state are supporting the teachers and state workers. This is, people nationally should 
know how much of this issue has been really publicized and talked about for years in Oklahoma. I was struck by that, that really there, this has been on people's radar screen for years, that the schools are deteriorating. That argument has been won. And because of that, there's a really generalized sense that now is the time. We've been talking about this for literally year after year after year. And if the funding isn't won now, we're not going to win it later. And so given that, um, the most remarkable thing to my mind about the protests and strikes so far has been the level of student support. The level of student support has certainly been higher and more prevalent than in West Virginia, for instance. So yesterday and um, on the first day of the action, for instance, there was a, a student teaching all day in which students went up, had their own mic, like a fake class to talk about the problems. And it was very, you know, it was very inspiring. I've talked to some students who are planning on organizing a joint student rally. I think the student dynamic is, for whatever reason, it's not clear to me, is much um, more at the fore than it was even in West Virginia. I think the flip side is that it's my intuition is that the overwhelming, almost semi-unanimous support for the strike that we saw in West Virginia is less likely here. The, the, the right wing is a little bit more emboldened. They're pushing harder on the idea that teachers are privileged. Somehow, it's, the argument is still made. Yesterday, the, the governor came out and compared the teachers who are demanding more funding and more pay to high school students who want a new car and don't realize they can't get everything they want. I saw that. How outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. And so on the one hand, it shows how disconnected the Republicans are from reality. Every time they say things like that, it it really fires up people from below. And so one of the evident parts of the action yesterday was just how much angrier people were than even the first day. It was really remarkable. The the first day was somewhat subdued. Maybe it was because it was really cold. And it was also the first big action where everybody got together. And there was sort of a sense of expectation. And that turned into anger very quickly yesterday. So for instance, there hadn't been chanting and yelling inside the Capitol on the first day. And then yesterday, people were outraged and lively and fiery. Well, that seems to be dynamic that's interesting to me as you're talking about that. In West Virginia, it felt like they kind of knew they were going to win. And it was a question of having the resolve to stay out and win. Whereas when the Republican governor said that about the car thing, I was like, she's not trying to mollify this situation. Like, she's not trying to contain it. And so that sets in motion a whole series of dynamics. I mean, what does that look like there in terms of do people sense that they're going to need to escalate to win? Does it feel like a harder fight in a lot of ways? Does it seem like the Republicans are digging in to try to wait this out or go against it? The relationship of forces is different than West Virginia, in which within the span of a few days, the Republican and state apparatus had divided on itself. I think we shouldn't underestimate how at first in West Virginia, it was unclear really what would happen and what the relationship of forces were. You never know before you enter into a struggle. So it became clear only midway through the strike that it was very likely that they would win and they would have to hold out. That became clear only after midway through and the governor caved. And from the second that happened, it set into motion an expectation from below that it was just a matter of time before the rest of the Republicans caved. So it's a little early to, to say that couldn't happen here. It's very possible that with, and we should expect that when there's mass struggle, that you're going to start seeing divisions in the Republicans between some of them wanting to give further concessions and others 
others wouldn't. Right. That being said, on the whole, my impression is that the Republican apparatus in the state is much more looking for a fight and feels like they have already conceded more than they wanted to and that they really want to just smash the current action. I don't think that they're planning at this point of trying to give anything more. And so what that means is there is a sense of having to ramp things up. The second day, Oklahoma, we saw something that we didn't see at all in West Virginia, which was there was a spontaneous sit-in in the Capitol right. just on the second day. And I think that type of dynamic is going to become more and more prevalent as people realize there's going to be a need to ramp things up. And for instance, the question of bringing in state workers in solidarity as a potential means through which the relationship of forces could be changed is something that's going to be a very live political issue in the coming days. I would also just imagine that beyond comparing the state Republican leaders in Oklahoma and West Virginia, that now that it's apparent that this is spreading to mostly red states around the country, you're going to have Koch brothers and other national forces exerting more both resource. We, we're not going to be able to know what's happening behind the scenes yet, but there's going to be a lot of national right wing forces trying to stop this or urge Oklahoma to hold the line because they see Arizona, Kentucky, how long before Kansas with just as devastating cuts. So, yeah, I mean, we, we won't know that. But yeah, I think they were caught a little flat flat in West Virginia and the ruling class sometimes gets surprised. And I think that that lag will be less and less the case here in Oklahoma and in Kentucky. I think you're right. But at the same time, part of what you're saying, the process of struggle has set in motion dynamics that aren't easily controlled. And it was striking reading your article how like Mickey Miller, one of the founders of the Oklahoma Teachers Teachers United, United, like talks about they were doing all these actions leading up, like what you were saying about talking about education, but there was a sense of hopelessness and despair as opposed to like resolve and militancy. And it feels like that's really flipped and that West Virginia played a huge part in that. And I guess maybe if you could just talk a little bit about like how you think that flipped and what are some of those dynamics that have been set in motion? It just seems like you're giving a picture of like each day people radicalizing very quickly. And obviously we can't tell what it's going to look like by Monday when this episode airs or by next week. They could have overthrown on the the legislature by by Monday. It just seems like that's a very interesting dynamic that for the first time, like our side's voice is a factor in the conversation and the balance of forces in a way we haven't seen in a really long time. Yeah, that's the most amazing thing about all of these strikes, really. That's the starting point is you have tens of thousands of people who had never been politically organized or mobilized before taking their destinies into their own hands. That's really the force driving this towards victory in West Virginia and hopefully in a similar direction here in Oklahoma. It's remarkable. You talk to people who in the span of a week have become organizers and in a real sort of ad hoc manner just to how do we get people to come to the Capitol? How do we get food out to our students? And One of the amazing things of this radicalization is people truly are bringing a lot of political baggage and illusions, and those dissipate very quickly. So on Monday and Tuesday, for instance, you had hundreds of teachers going and talking to their legislators. And really, I think hoping sincerely that the legislators would see the light when there was good arguments presented to them about where the funding can come from. Surely they would listen. And the outrage just the sheer, very uh, emotional, visceral outrage that these politicians refuse to concede or even give any sense that they might concede after very well-reasoned arguments were presented to them was palpable. And I think that's why you saw on Tuesday a really different dynamic from below, where in the span of a day, people realized that it would be up to them to win. And just presenting the arguments and just having the right um, righteousness on your side wasn't sufficient, that they were going to have to be forced, the politicians were going to have to be forced from below. That is already 
in motion. And the, unfortunately, you can't just invent organization out of thin air. I think Oklahoma is uh, different West Virginia in that sense that traditions and organizations of labor militancy in West Virginia, although significantly weakened, at least relative to Oklahoma, had some basic infrastructures that people were able to lean on um, to organize their schools. Here, it, there's a lot more ground to catch up on for people to organize. And it's uh, it's going to be an open question how that will play out over the coming days. I will say that one of the really good things that's happened is that under pressure from below, the, the union leadership has taken a more militant um, and determined stance. And that has created space for the action to last for, it seems, at least a week. And that gives time for people to organize and it gives time for people to continue to feel empowered. And ultimately, I think that's, for all of these strikes, probably the main victory beyond whatever concessions are won is this real empowerment that is very hard to take away no matter what happens. One thing, Brian Jones we did an episode with him. I was going to say the same thing. Really? Yeah, if, yeah I think so. Go ahead. <laughs> About how it's the people who believe in the lies and mythology of this country the most who become the most radical when that veil is ripped. And I was just reminded of that when you were talking about people going in, being with their legislators, and how quickly that process of radicalization can take place, which I think can be surprising even to those of us who are like literally looking for it every single Day. That's a plug for episode two, interview with Brian Jones. <laughs> but getting back to this, Eric, thank you so much. This was really uh, informative and helpful and, and inspiring. And we urge people to keep following Eric's work. He's reporting on these strikes for Jacobin. Which side are you on? Tell me. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Thank you very much for your time. All right, we're back. And we're now talking to Nicole McCormick, um, who's been a teacher in Mercer County, West Virginia for nine years and just was part of the victorious um, strike that took place there. And we've also got Dana Blanchard with us who traveled to West Virginia to cover the strike for Socialist Worker and also happens to have been a teacher for 15 years in Berkeley, California. And we were hoping... Where she failed to ever once lead a successful statewide strike. Just want to note. Right. So we're going to be hearing a lot more from Nicole. Um, <laughs> but we're really psyched that both of them are here. Uh, we're talking to Nicole in her living room in West Virginia and Dana in Chicago. Yeah, Nicole, um, I have to imagine that a couple months ago you did not picture that you would be in the Capitol building, um, you know, rallying. And I assume, you know, rallying with thousands of other teachers in a, in a strike that was being watched by people around the country and actually, you know, in, in some cases by people around the world. I just, you know, if you could just start off by talking about personally how your experience of how, of, from what you saw in your school in your county, how this momentum got started and what the experience was like for the situation to change so dramatically week by week and day by day. Well, you're, you're exactly right. I never expected for there to be a big group to come together. I've been to the Capitol many, many times, and I've sat down with the Senate president, and there's always been just a couple of people with me. And um, for years, I kind of felt like I was screaming into the void, and there was no response from anyone. Members, friends, teachers, you know, union members, it, it all just kind of seemed like it, that they were okay with what was going on. But really, for the past three years, we've taken a pay cut. And uh, again, I just thought that people were okay with it. They never really seemed to have too big of a, an issue. So whenever the PEIA, which is the Public Employees Insurance Agency, rolled out their new way that they were going to get their money and their new plan, I think people realized how dire the situation was. Because with 
our pay not keeping up with the inflation and with the increased healthcare costs, you know, that those pay cuts each year would have just been kind of tenfold with this. And so they only had a couple of hearings for the entire state. And what a hearing is, is basically there's a panel that's appointed by the governor. They're all white. They're all middle-aged. They're all wealthy men. (laughs) Your ideal audience. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So they're sitting behind this table and people are pouring their guts out. I mean, just Mm. just these horribly sad and distressful stories. And I got up there and said my spiel too. you know, they just sat there. And and even our local elected officials weren't there. They weren't in the room to be representative or to listen to concerns. And there were stories of workers that had been retired since 1996 and disabled. And at one point in time, they were able actually to make ends meet. And now they were looking at having to move in with their children because the increases were going to be so disastrous or a retired teacher who ran a food bank. And she said that more and more people every year were retired teachers and retired service professionals that were coming to get help with food because they had to choose between medication and food. Because the retirees are also covered by this health care right. plan. Wow. So people on fixed yes. incomes are also dealing with these spiraling costs. You're exactly right. And so, you know, the teachers and service personnel are a very small portion of the population of West Virginia that are covered under this. And... So I'm so thankful that people actually stood up and and wanted to include the service um, professionals and and even the public employees. But for my family, my husband's a teacher, too. So there is no other insurance option like that. That's it. The end. Right. And we have you know, we have limited income as teachers. And even though we both work multiple jobs and multiple degrees, you work multiple jobs in addition to being teachers. I do. I do. I um, take the lesser approach. I teach voice lessons, but that means that I don't leave school till probably six o'clock almost every evening. And I teach them on Saturday too. Wow. And my husband is an adjunct professor for two local universities. Oh my God. And two local finished, universities. Two, yeah, two different local universities. And he has a bachelor's degree, a post-bac degree, two master's degrees, and he's finishing his dissertation. <laughs> oh my God. And I have a master's degree plus, and, you know, and we're still struggling. But to make it personal, this PEIA disaster meant that our family of six, after we paid our bills, you know, made sure we had gas money put aside, would have been eating and buying diapers and clothes and emergencies off of like $15 a day for six people after this increase. Oh, my God. And I mean, that's just that's it's disgusting. I mean, there's no that's no way to live. So I think that people finally realized that that they had to pay attention, Mm -hmm. that they had to do something. And so that desperation is what sparked people to be active, to get angry, to freely say the word strike, to push their unions into doing something because, of course, they wanted to squash it. They wanted us to kind of just keep on going and making the phone calls and the emails, which obviously hasn't worked for years and years and years. Right. So how did the idea that we had to do something more than what the union was saying come about? I mean, when you were speaking about going to these hearings for years and years and years and no one coming and speaking into, you know, the white rich man void. It reminded me like we did an event in New York City with Katie Endicott, who's a teacher from Mingo County. And she described how her husband, I think, went to the same hearing you're describing and came home just pretty demoralized because there were only like 100 people at the hearing. And he thought there were going to be so many more. And he's like, people don't care. And she said to him, like, look, it's not that people don't care. They don't know what's about to come at us. You have to tell people. And he made 
this Facebook Live video that started going around and that's when they started having meetings and stuff like that. And so it does seem like there was a turning point around those hearings and people starting to get organized. There was. And I think that it's better to not point fingers, but to realize, just like Katie was saying, that people, I don't think it's willful ignorance, but whenever that you're desperate and you're struggling and you are just trying to live, putting more on your plate, more worry, more burden is not something you want to do. And so finally going to those hearings, getting that information out with Facebook and email and putting papers in school mailboxes and speaking to people in person, I think that that's what happened. People realized that this was something that had to be changed immediately and that they weren't going to listen to us just making the phone calls and emails. So when those first counties went out, um, you know, Wyoming County is in even worse shape than Mercer County is. And Mercer County is in really really bad shape, which is the county I'm in. Wyoming County was very, very heavily, their economy was around the coal industry. Mm -hmm. So of course, whenever that those mines and things closed down, the industries that are related to those also closed down. So a lot of people were single income households with no savings. And for them to have the gumption to say that we're going to do something, we're going to walk out, will you come with us, is a huge, huge step. And and just their bravery is really what sparked all of this. Hmm. Well, Dana, we wanted to bring you into this as well. So you were, like Jen was saying at the beginning, you were a teacher in Berkeley, California for 15 years. I think in certainly in the popular imagination, people would think that Coal country in West Virginia and Berkeley, California couldn't be two more opposite places. And, you know, there are differences, certainly in terms of teacher pay, cost of living and stuff like that. When you were going to cover the strike in West Virginia, what were some of the experiences that you found different than your experiences as a union organizer and activist teacher in California? And what resonated with you? I mean, I think the biggest difference was just the feeling of being in the Capitol with thousands of teachers chanting and singing and being militant all together. I, I don't feel like I've ever experienced anything like that before. Certainly not. Um, I mean, we've in California, we had rallies and lobbying days, but the kind of sense of like we're calling out the politicians were at their doorstep and people chanting things like we're not leaving till we see it in writing when there were promises that were made. Just the feeling of power that folks had, I think, was was a really unique and special experience. Talking to people there, though, I definitely felt like there were some commonalities, public Public education has been under attack for quite a while. And I think the the rising health care costs, the lack of funding for pensions, the lack of raises, the narrative of there's just no money. So you just have to keep tightening your belt and tightening your belt. And don't you care about your kids? And like this job should be some sort of personal self-sacrifice. I feel like people had that same narrative in West Virginia. And it's something that was definitely common in California, especially during the years of um, the budget crisis in California, where you know, 30,000 teachers got laid off. We were told there will be no raises and our health care costs kept going up. And people in West Virginia are experiencing the same struggles as working class people around the country um, and especially public education workers. And I, I think there was just a lot of common conversations to be had, but also just a sense of how amazing this moment is where people are standing up for themselves in unison and the power there was definitely unique experience and, and different than anything that I'd been part of before and, and definitely inspired me um, personally and politically. And, you know, it was pretty, pretty incredible to be there. Nicole, when you were talking about how 
people had felt sort of hopeless. And on the one hand, you're suffering. And on the other hand, to admit like we need to fight back is to put another thing on your plate that already feels so overfull. It reminded me, um, we were talking to Eric Blanc earlier, who covered the West Virginia strike for Jacobin and is now in Oklahoma. And he wrote an article where he quotes a teacher in Oklahoma saying, we've been going through this stuff for so long, but people just felt hopeless and pessimistic. And then we watched the teachers in West Virginia. It wasn't just that they went out, it's that they got a deal and they said, we're staying out until we get everything we want. And that's what gave us the conviction that we had to start saying strike. We had to start pushing for a strike deadline. I mean, did you expect when you started this for this to spread? And I guess I would add to that question, if you could think of like one or two things that you would want to be able to share with teachers in Oklahoma or Kentucky or Arizona who are all, you know, taking action right now, like what would you want to be able to tell them um, to help their struggles? Of course, I didn't expect that. I honestly expected I'd be thrown in jail with my county president <laughs> for, for staying out because I stepped up to be vice president because um, we needed one. I, I think the first thing would be not only to recognize power in yourself because that that one's hard. You know, you almost feel like it's a personal failing to struggle. <laughs> you know, you feel like that that you haven't done something that you should have done, but to to recognize that you as a person and as part of a group that you have power and to recognize your leverage. I mean, we have 727 teaching vacancies in West Virginia. You know, obviously people don't want to teach. So to use that to say, you know, sorry, we're going out and we're not coming back until this gets fixed. It comes to the point of what are they going to do and and recognizing that, recognizing that, you know, that you are important. And something that my husband and I talked about, which has resonated so much with me, is he said to me one day we were talking about about labor in general. And he said, you know, it's our labor first, Nicole. And I was like, that's exactly right. I was like, it is our labor to either give or to withhold. And recognizing that, recognizing that you're not a pawn in somebody else's game that you are important as an individual is is huge. It, it really is, I feel like, the first step. And so for anyone going through this, no matter what their job is or how desperate they feel, recognizing that, that they are they are worthy. We are worthy. That was your slogan, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> it was such a, such a crazy time. It, uh, you know, it was exciting, but it was also scary and nerve-wracking and, and at the same time empowering. You know, being there that day that our state leadership called for the first two days to be, you know, for us to, to walk out together. And, you know, and it's important to note that everyone was included in that vote. It wasn't just members. It was non-members and members. It was the bus drivers and the cooks and the custodians and everyone in between because there probably would have been able to be school a couple of days if the bus drivers and the cooks hadn't said, no, we're not coming in. So, I mean, they saved people from having to choose whether to be on the picket line or to cross it. Right. That seems but, uh, solidarity is it, the only it way is. to win. <laughs> it is. But that day, you know, it was cold and rainy and, you know, you had to park for a mile away from the Capitol to walk in and to see the school buses that people were able to rent to come in on that Saturday and stuff was just so powerful that the school boards and the superintendents were behind us, that they recognize our issue is their issue. And if they can't fill their classrooms with the type of people that they need, then they're just as much up the creek as we are. You know, as you're 
just listening to you talk about what it means to assert you know, the, the, your power as a worker, your dignity as a worker. We're recording this on April 4th. It's literally 50 years to the day of Martin Luther King's assassination. And he was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, where he was giving support to a sanitation worker strike. And it was that strike that had the iconic placards, I am a man, you know what I mean, about, about workers and black workers in particular asserting their dignity. These teacher strikes, which are mostly women, are adding a new you know, a, a dimension to that as well. But it's, it's, it's such a timeless um, lesson. I'm wondering, what What's the aftermath been like on a local community level in terms of the atmosphere in your in your county or in your school? And and but also do you feel like this strike has raised people's political sites or changed some political conversations in the state? This is after all the state that's you know it was uh famous for you know voting for Trump in, in the highest proportions of any state in the country. Yeah, I, well I think it's important to note too that Bernie Sanders won. <laughs> and so I think that um and I was a huge Bernie supporter, but mm-hmm. I think that people were we're looking for anything, for anything different to get them out of the destitution and desperation that they felt. But the first day back from the strike, I really didn't know what to expect. You know, I didn't know because there were obviously some people that were not for it, you know, in the schools, even though they were very quiet about it. You know, you know that they existed. But there was this like sense of renewed joy, you know, and it it didn't last too awful long because school is hard. It's hard to to work in the school system. But those first few days, you could see the the lightness in people and the way that they interacted with each other and and with their students and the students it was just like it was a couple of snow days you know it, it wasn't a big deal at all they were happy to be back we were happy to see them and as far as the political changes we had a local town hall and all of our local elected delegates are republicans and um, during the town hall one of our local republicans is an obgyn and he told this audience full of probably six or seven hundred teachers service personnel board members community members that he lost money going to the state every year for the six weeks now they make twenty thousand dollars to go to charleston for six for weeks. Six weeks. And uh, yeah, so a starting head cook makes $19,000 a year. So he's telling this group that, <laughs> you know, that his he's sacrifice money. of public service. Yes, his, his huge sacrifice. And people literally stood up and said, his name is Dr. Ellington. They said, Dr. Ellington, you delivered my baby, but I am so disgusted by you. And that was like the whole room was like, here, here. And wow. so I think a lot of people re- realize that these people are out of touch. Mm. You know, they're completely out of touch with what the regular person is struggling. So sounds like his sacrifice won't be required much longer. (laughs) That's my hope. And my hope (laughs) is that we really look to third party candidates and to kind of get out of this um, stuck in two party system. Because, you know, I mean, the Democrats have failed us just as much as the Republicans and anyone that thinks otherwise is not paying attention. Right. Because people keep talking about how these strikes are happening in red state America, but those states weren't always red. I mean, it's like the Democrats no. controlled West Virginia. They controlled Oklahoma. There, There's this discussion that happens in the media like, oh, my God, the Democrats, like, what's the narrative that they're going to get to attract these, like, mysterious white workers in these places? And it's not about a narrative. It's about what people have lived through for so many years, it seems like. I mean, social issues can and will, especially like in the area that I live in, divide people. But if you're talking about being able to feed your family, that is common ground that everyone can stand on. And so trying to find that, trying to find ways that you can help people live, to thrive, to have happy, healthy lives would help any politician and hopefully can move not only 
us as a people, but us as a state, us as a nation Mm -hmm. forward, if we can find that common ground there. Well, yeah. And one thing, I guess this is sort of bringing us to a close, unfortunately, because I feel like I could talk to you for a few hours, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but I know you're sick and are taking your time. It also just seems like you guys, the teachers and the bus drivers and the custodians and the cooks in West Virginia and the teachers in Oklahoma have already done more to shift policy than it feels like any politician has done in recent memory and also are changing the narrative. Like it it just seems like what you were saying before about how you feel like it's you did something wrong or it's your fault. It's like watching the stories coming out of Oklahoma about people driving Lyft or waitressing at night after teaching a full day. And I mean, I was shocked to hear what you said about you and your husband's extra jobs and degrees and all of that. It's hard to paper that over anymore. Suddenly it's not like I failed. It's like the system is failing people and the rich have to pay. And I think you guys have begun to change that narrative in a big way. And it's really exciting. But also pointing the finger specifically at the energy companies, which we now see getting repeated in Oklahoma, where people actually seeing, wait, there is wealth here. Right. Right. I mean, as horrible as the extractive industries have been for our state, because they really have, you know, I mean, they've, they've raped us and left. And I mean, the communities, it's its like you see these photos of slums and there are many, many places in West Virginia that look like that. And it, it's its really sad. It really is. But if it's going to happen, then we need we need to tax those people and try to do something to help our people, our West Virginians, our our school systems, our infrastructure, whatever it may be. And so my hope is that with the help of like the Facebook pages and and the new involvement that we can get people to pay attention and to continue to be engaged and to ask those difficult questions and to not give in and to not believe the lies of we don't have the money. We can't do that. They're going to leave because it's not going to happen. I mean, if you're making trillions of dollars, a million here or there is nothing. Totally. Thank you so much for being with us. Dina, did you have anything you wanted to add in closing? Nicole is amazing. And I think, you know, meeting her was one of the highlights of our trip to West Virginia, meeting her and her husband and her family. And I think it just speaks to all the connections that are being made right now and all the commonalities people are finding across states. And it just belies the whole narrative that there's red states and blue states. And instead, it says there's workers and there's people that profit off of workers. And I think workers are starting to see themselves now as more connected than ever. And West Virginia has just put class struggle back on the map as an option for fighting back. And the S word, the strike word, I feel like people are saying it again. It's changed the narrative in such an amazing way and changed the framework for what's possible and not like the false hope of politicians doing stuff for us, but faith in ourselves to do it for ourselves. And people like Nicole and her husband and the other strikers we met are really the heroes of the story. So I'm glad I'm glad she got to to share her story with everybody. And I hope it's one of many opportunities for people to hear more from the strikers in West Virginia. Thank you so much, guys, for making the time. This was great. Yeah. And thank you from the bottom, bottom of our hearts here in New York City. Nicole, to you and the teachers and strikers of West Virginia for Absolutely. taking the first step on this. It really it's it's huge. Now, thank you for having faith in us and for giving us more faith in ourselves, too. And there ain't no way they can ever keep us down. Oh, no. Ain't no way they can ever keep us down. 
All right, that was our episode. Holy cow. We're really excited about it, and we hope you are too. And so if you can, help us by getting this out there. Share it on Facebook, share it on Twitter, share it with your friends, share it at work, share it everywhere you are. And don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and leave us a review and subscribe so that people can find us in the future. Thanks, guys. See you next week.